1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Vietnam's economy is on a tear and the country is just starting to produce its first billionaires. In other countries, big companies with mega-rich bosses are increasingly subject to government scrutiny. In Vietnam, they're getting lots of government help. And for humans, social distancing is a concept that must be relearned each time there's an epidemic. It's a lesson that bees seem to know already. They've figured out how to spread out to reduce the effects of a deadly mite infestation. But first, When a new respiratory disease cropped up in Wuhan, China in 2019, it took a month for the warning to go up. It took another month for America to ban flights from China. This time around, when a worrying new variant of the coronavirus was identified in South Africa, the response took just days.
0: We take this Omicron variant very serious, and we know that we are now in a race against time. We need to slow down the spread of this variant here in the UK.
2: If you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you're fully vaccinated, get boosted, and get the children vaccinated also.
1: America, Britain, and the European Union have banned flights from a handful of countries in Southern Africa. Japan, Israel, and Morocco have shut their borders to all foreign travelers. It's no surprise that cases are already being confirmed far from where this new variant, called Omicron, was first spotted. But beyond this initial period of extreme caution, the best policy responses to Omicron are still to be figured out.
3: As with any new variant, it's going to take time to learn just how transmissible and deadly Omicron is. And it will take us perhaps even longer to learn how well vaccines protect against it.
1: Slavia Chankova is The Economist's healthcare correspondent.
3: What we do know so far is that acting early to stop it from spreading widely and rapidly pays off. If you wait to learn more about exactly how transmissible or deadly it is, you will probably be too late.
1: And so what do we know about how Omicron actually emerged?
3: So the first signs of a problem emerged in South Africa where scientists saw a very rapid increase in cases, particularly in the area around Johannesburg, which was unusually high compared to the rest of the country.
2: Initially, it looked like, you know, it was just some cluster outbreaks, uh, maybe gatherings and, and, and so on.
3: When they went and looked at genomic sequencing of samples there, they found this new variant. The
2: indication came. From our our scientists uh, colleagues, indeed, they were observing uh, what looked like a new variant,
3: which has a very large number of mutations. That's how they spotted in in the data. This combination of a rapid increase and in, you know these high level of mutations led them to believe that this variant is going to be a problem. Some of these mutations are known from past studies of other variants to be correlated with higher transmissibility with making the virus better at evading immunity, either from the vaccines or from natural infection. And combined, of course, with the epidemiology of what we are seeing uh, in South Africa, things are looking a little scary.
1: In the sense that high transmissibility is is kind of an echo of the Delta story, a highly transmissible variant that eventually kind of took over the world.
3: Exactly, yeah, that that's the biggest fear. And because Delta has been the predominant variant in South Africa, there is an indication that this new variant, Omicron, is actually supplanting Delta. Now, whether this is going to happen around the world is a very open question because we have seen in the past a variant in South Africa, the beta variant, which never took off anywhere else. And also we saw the alpha variant, which was known as the Kent variant, which took over in Europe, but it never took over in South Africa. So it's far from guaranteed that this variant is going to supplant Delta all over the world.
1: And the bigger question, even while we wait for a clearer picture on that, is how protected people are with the the vaccines that they may already have received.
3: We won't know the answer for a couple of weeks, possibly longer. Researchers are working around the clock on laboratory studies just to see uh, how this virus behaves when you test it against serum from people who have been vaccinated or have had infection in the past. You know, they're also looking at the data in South Africa of how many vaccinated versus unvaccinated people have been infected or have gotten sick. But for now, most scientists think that the vaccines are still going to be effective even if they may turn out to be somewhat less effective, and particularly for preventing severe disease. We've seen that with other variants, the vaccines have been quite effective when it comes to preventing the worst outcomes.
1: But in order to get to the, the kinds of protection that we've seen against other variants, does that mean that new vaccines might be needed once we know more?
3: That may turn out to be the case. We may need to update the current vaccines, which uh, have been developed originally against the Wuhan strain. And in fact, several vaccine manufacturers are already working on that. For example, Pfizer and BioNTech are already looking into that. They've said that they can ship the first batches of an (laughs) Omicron-updated vaccine within 100 days, of course, that's a massive undertaking, you know, changing your production line to produce a a very new vaccine and shipping it all over the world. So it's not going to happen very fast, even though theoretically they can develop a new version very quickly. And before you do that, of course, you you want to make sure that you really do need one. You do want to, to wait to see whether Omicron is likely to replace Delta worldwide. Because for now, the vaccines we have are quite effective against Delta. Stopping the line uh, to start producing something else will slow down vaccination against Delta.
1: So with the knowledge that we have and knowing what knowledge we still need, what, what are the good policies here? It seems that the world has been quite reactive this time around, and, and broadly that's a good thing, Right.
3: Yes, I would agree so. I mean, with Delta, by the time we realized what was happening, the virus has already spread all over the world in large numbers. Now we have a little bit of lead time because South Africa has a very good sequencing capacity. Their scientists have been just excellent, really, in warning the world about this of course, the country is not happy because now everybody has banned travel from South Africa, has isolated the country. We've seen you know, South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, said yesterday that travel the bans against his country are unjustified. The
0: prohibition of travel is not informed by science, nor will it be effective in preventing the spread of this variant. The only thing The prohibition on travel will do is to further damage the economies of the affected countries.
3: But this is really the only thing we can do right now. I mean, we, we won't prevent this virus from spreading. This is about slowing it down so that countries can prepare for its arrival in large numbers. What's an open question is how far the virus has already spread. We already saw, you know, more than a dozen cases on just two flights from South Africa that arrived in the Netherlands. And we know that just to Europe, in November, there are more than 300 flights from southern Africa. And, you know, those have capacity for about 100,000 seats. If indeed it's already spreading, border closures may be too late. Of course, not every case will spark a chain of transmission or a super spreading event. But the more cases you have, the more likely that becomes. And that's what countries in Europe and elsewhere are trying to prevent right now.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Sluraya.
3: Thanks for having me, Jason.
1: We're still running our survey, and we'd love to hear from you. What you like and what you don't about the intelligence, what we could do more of or less of. Have your say in our poll. It's at economist.com slash intelligence survey. Just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks a lot. The University of Oxford's Lineker College is about to get rebranded. It was originally named after Thomas Lineker, a 15th century scholar who taught and was taught by some of the era's intellectual greats. But after a $207 million gift from Nguyen Thi Phuong Tao, one of Vietnam's wealthiest people, Lineker College will soon be Tao College. She's one of Vietnam's newly mega-rich, and the government seems keen to see more of them.
4: So as recently as 2012, there were no billionaires at all in Vietnam. There are now six, and that's a number that's likely to continue growing with a booming stock market.
1: Mike Bird is The Economist's Asia business and finance editor.
4: They're very interesting figures with growing clout both at home and abroad. And they've got growing and interesting political relationship with the government.
1: And give us some examples. Who, who are these billionaires?
4: So one of the billionaires in question is Nguyen Thi Phong Tao. She's the president and CEO of Vietjet, which is a very successful private budget airline. She's the one whose name will now be held by this Oxford College. She, like many of the billionaires we're talking about, was educated in the former Soviet Union. That was the, the standard destination of choice for a smart and potentially well-connected youngster in Vietnam for much of the 1970s, 1980s, and the very early 1990s. And it also left those people in a position to engage in a lot more business and trading and commerce than they would have had the opportunity to do in Vietnam. It also meant that when Vietnam started opening up, those were some of the people outside of the country who were citizens of Vietnam, but who had serious foreign capital to invest in the country.
1: And what about the, the other billionaires on the list? What kinds of businesses are they in? So you have someone like Pham Nhat Vong,
4: who's the richest man in Vietnam. He's the first person to enter the Forbes Index of Billionaires in 2013. He runs a series of companies under the umbrella of, of Vingroup and Vinhomes. So these are absolutely enormous companies in a Vietnamese context. They'd be sort of S&P 500 size companies in the U.S., And he does basically everything. It is very hard to find a part of the services sector, in particular in Vietnam, that he hasn't touched. They run tourism, there's real estate arm, there's pharmacies, there's hospitals, there's schools... It's a very, very broad business with uh, fingers in a lot of pies. What most of them have in common is that they are in some way plugged into the very rapidly growing economy in Vietnam. So you've got this this booming middle class, very rapid economic growth compared to almost anywhere in the world. And all of his businesses, to some degree or another,
1: are plugged into that sort of rise. Which is to say that that Vietnam is is welcoming its, its new freshman billionaire class? Absolutely. So this is one of the the fascinating things.
4: If you're a US or Chinese billionaire, you have on a very wide and differing spectrum come into a bit of conflict in all likelihood with the government over the last couple of years. In Vietnam, that is absolutely not the case. So the Vietnamese government would very, very much like to have some large, successful, private, globally competitive companies. And at the moment, that very much looks like it's going to be one of these sort of companies, Vingroup in particular, companies like Vietjet, they're listed, they're not state-owned like a lot of Vietnam's large companies. And the government thinks that these companies are going to be the sort that get international attention and international investment, and to some degree, put Vietnam on the map. And that puts these billionaires in a very fortunate position of having their fortunes sort of tied up with the very senior levels of the Vietnamese state.
1: And in what ways does that help them?
4: So they get a number of different lines of support. In Vietnam, all of the land is owned by the government. That's the same situation as you have in China and Hong Kong. So that does give the government a fair amount of latitude in terms of supporting their sort of economic and financial priorities. That might mean that certain companies from time to time end up with a a fairly good relationship, ending to sort of decent deals when it comes to land ownership. now a lot of these billionaires, while they have their consumer focused and, and middle class focused businesses, that are really riding on the back of that economic development. They also have a lot of wealth that comes from real estate and banking. Now, in a country like Vietnam and to some extent countries all over the world, those two sectors are really sort of relationship industries. And it matters having the support of the government and you're able to get quite a lot done with the right links to the top. They do have businesses that are you know, genuinely private and interesting and competitive, but a big part of their wealth is also in the sort of oligarch side of things.
1: But having this relationship, these close ties to government can can be tricky, right? Governments can be tricky taskmasters.
4: Absolutely. Being sort of politically connected is a big upside until you lose that upside. The fact that the government, for example, owns all the land means that if you were to run foul of the government, you're not going to have a good time. You know, there's been anti-corruption campaigns in the past and the danger of having this sort of close relationship with the government well obviously in a, in a one-party state like Vietnam is always that you're going to run afoul of someone in the wrong way. The same sort of process that has helps you rise to the top can become a serious difficulty for you as well.
1: And right now, the number of billionaires is under 10. Given the sort of the interplay here and the way things are laid out, will that uh, a class of billionaires just keep growing? Or, or is this just an effect of how things are for the moment as the economy, as you say, keeps growing?
4: To some degree, I suppose there's a little bit of competition between the idea of new billionaires coming in and the existing billionaires having sort of serious economic privileges. But I would say that the economic growth has been so rapid in Vietnam and there is still so much room to go that there almost certainly will be considerably more billionaires, whether they will enjoy quite the same close links isn't clear. But if you look at countries like Japan and South Korea, I think that's illustrative of the model that the government wants to find. They want their own Samsungs, they want their own Toyotas, their own Toshibas. And I think that's the sort of mirror of what you're looking for. And when you look at the rich people in those countries, you have some sort of major families, you know, the Samsung empire, for example. And that's the sort of thing that these billionaires, these first few have the opportunity of sort of making as
1: Vietnam grows. Mike, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. There's still plenty to be learned about the Omicron variant of the coronavirus, but what remains crystal clear is that some simple strategies always work, including keeping a safe distance from others. It's an idea that no longer seems limited to humans.
2: Just like us, bees live in these highly structured and sociable societies, and that makes them vulnerable to infectious disease in the same way that we are.
1: Ainsley Johnson is a data journalist at The Economist.
2: In a study from researchers at the University of Cesare in Sardinia, an island in Italy, they looked at whether bees use some of the same strategies that we do to try and protect themselves against infectious disease. And they found that bees actually implement their own form of lockdowns when their hive is under threat of infection.
1: So wait a minute, what are the kinds of of threats that social distancing would, would help with?
2: So the biggest threat to honeybees around the world is actually a parasitic mite with a very ominous name, Varroa destructor. And the mite attaches itself onto bees, a bit like a tick might attach itself onto a human and this little varroa mite can actually pass in between bees. But to really reproduce and infect a whole hive, the mite has to take advantage of the bee's special colony structure.
1: What, what is the structure, though?
2: So their hives are divided up into two main sections. The sort of outside part of the hive is mainly used to store food. But in the core of the hive, in the sort of inner sections... The honeycomb is mostly filled with what are called brood cells, and they are cells where bee larvae and pupa will grow and develop into their adult forms.
1: Right, so how does this mite take advantage of, of that structure?
2: So the Varroa parasite enters the colony by hitchhiking on forager bees who have come into the hive from outside, but it needs to enter the brood cells in order to reproduce. And then it can start multiplying in the cell while the larva is developing. But then once the larva in the infected cells emerge as adult bees, they can carry the mite with them back out to the edges of the hive and potentially infect a lot more bees.
1: So the researchers wanted to see if the bees had a way of preventing the mite from reaching the core?
2: Yeah, exactly. The researchers set up six colonies and they infected half of them with the mite they studied two common activities. One of them was the waggle dance, which is a way that forager bees communicate the location of new food sources to the other bees. And the other is allogrooming, which is when bees clean debris or parasites from each other's bodies.
1: And what did they
2: find? Their results were pretty striking. In their Varroa-free group, without the mite, Waggle dances and allo grooming occurred all throughout the hive, whereas in the infected colonies, most of the waggling occurred just near the entrance of the hive, so to the outside away from the core, potentially keeping the infected foragers away from the vulnerable brood cells. And allo grooming was concentrated in the centre of the hive, where parasite removal from these newly emerged young bees would have the greatest impact. So this basically showed that in the presence of a threat, the bees reduced the contact between the different groups. So they prevented mixing, they protected the vulnerable, and they concentrated their hygiene efforts where they were most needed.
1: So bees do social distancing arguably better than humans do. I mean, are there lessons to be taken here?
2: Well, I think that we can definitely draw parallels In the same way that politicians and scientists weigh up the pros and cons of various lockdown measures during the COVID-19 pandemic, natural selection has weighed up the pros and cons for various colonies and individuals and performed a similar calculation. And for the bees, at least, their benefits of social distancing seem to outweigh the costs.
1: Ainsley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The links to subscribe and to take our survey are in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.
0: Pets mean the world to us, which is why at Mars... We advocate for all pets, not just the ones we serve. Our State of Pet Homelessness Project highlights the extent of pet homelessness around the world, as well as the factors behind the numbers in each country. Knowing the causes of pet homelessness will help us reduce the numbers and ensure that cats and dogs receive the care they need to thrive. To find out more, visit stateofpethomelessness.com.